Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise.io and join today. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Amy Edmondson. Amy is a leadership teaming and organizational learning scholar and is currently the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School. She has written seven books and over 75 articles on the dynamic forms of collaboration needed in environments that are characterized by uncertainty and ambiguity. She is best known for her pioneering work on psychological safety. Amy earned a PhD in organizational behavior, a master's degree in psychology, and a bachelor's degree in engineering and design from Harvard University. Before working at Harvard, she was a director of research at Picos River Learning Centers. She was also chief engineer architect and inventor Buckminster Fuller. In 2019, Amy was selected the most influential thinker in human resources by HR Magazine, and she is currently ranked number one on the Thinkers 50 list. Amy, welcome. I really appreciate you doing the show with me today. Thanks for having me. Great. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with a book. You've got a new book coming out uh, soon, Right Kind of Wrong. Can you give us a bit of an overview on it? Sure. It's a guide to the failure landscape. The core idea is that not all failures alike. You're familiar with the phrases, fail fast, fail well. And my argument is those make sense in some contexts, but not all. And in some failures, but not all failures. So the book, it builds on the research you've done on psychological safety, the work that you really kind of built your career around. But what was the specific catalyst for writing a book on failure? Well, I think the specific catalyst was in terms of this time, it's really for me coming back full circle because I discovered psychological safety or I got interested in psychological safety by studying failures. And what I didn't expect, I didn't set out to discover, but what I found along the way was that people had remarkably different tolerance for speaking up about failures and errors in different groups, even within the same organizational context. That was something that just struck me as really interesting and important, particularly for the goal of learning. That's how psychological safety sort of came into my life and became a core research interest and area. But failure was always lurking in the background because failure is part and parcel of being alive. And so I've always been fascinated by it. I think failure is part of a full life. It's certainly part of any innovative company that succeeds over the long term. But the concept of failure I think has been widely misunderstood. Yeah. I mean, so many people are ashamed or afraid of failing, right? And why is that? And what do they lose by not having a better relationship with failure? I think we're naturally ashamed of our inadequacies or or shortcomings. And 
We want to be seen as perfect. We want to be seen in a good light by others. And this this is quite instinctive as well as learned through life because there's this underlying worry that will get rejected. And if we get rejected from the group, from the company, from the family, we will be in trouble, which in fact, we would be in trouble. The irony is that we want to be seen as perfect, but we don't really like people who are perfect or who seem to think they're perfect because deep down, we understand that's not real. So we want to be seen as flawless. And it's kind of a fundamental error, if you will. It is at the same time. I mean, you've talked about failing fast and the flaws and failing fast in certain domains. And I know you feel equally about the idea that failure is not an option. Right. At the same time, you bring up early in the book the point that accepting failure doesn't mean accepting mediocrity. It's a very important point. And so I think if you limit truly embracing failure to what I'll call the good kind or intelligent failures, then I think the logic of embracing failure and even the fail fast, fail smart logic makes more sense. This is not at all, you know, it's the opposite of mediocrity, because in order to experience intelligent failures, you have to be willing and able to engage in smart experiments. You have to do your homework. You have to think clearly about what might be possible, view what's known and what's not known. And then you're taking this smart risk and you're trying something new, which is a kind of ambitious and brave thing to do to see what happens. You hope it succeeds, of course, but it won't often because you're in new territory and you didn't have a crystal ball. So whereas the kinds of failures that happen because you mailed it in or you didn't read the instructions or you broke a rule, those are the kinds of failures that happen because of a willingness to embrace mediocrity. So it really starts with being very clear about the difference between intelligent failures and other kinds of failures. And then committing to doing what you can, and we can talk more about this, to prevent the preventable failures, committing to embracing and sort of setting out to experience more of the good kind. You raised that point early in the book, and certainly that was one of the things that really stood out for me in reading it was just there is intelligent failure, and then there is all the other kind of failure. And you want to ultimately kind of tilt the scales more toward having some of that intelligent failure. It's As a leader, I can tell you it's really hard trying to both create that environment where you want people to report all kinds of failure, right? Including the ones that you would ultimately deem as not intelligent. And you've got to create that environment for, again, allowing people to feel safe doing that, but also helping them to start to distinguish between was that a good failure or an intelligent failure or not an intelligent failure. Going back to your work on psychological safety, how you can do that as a leader so much. There's so much to say about this. And one of the things that I I want to say is that don't be afraid to describe the bind, right? Don't be afraid to say out loud that on the one hand, really want creativity and innovation. On the other hand, we worry about, you know, sort of doing things well and make the tension at the heart of this issue discussable because I think it's fundamentally a team problem-solving opportunity. It's not something that you as a leader either should or could specify to others exactly what to do and how to do it. But nonetheless, like what are the key things that I think that leaders can do? To me, it starts with messaging, being crystal clear that you see the uncertainty and the challenge that lies ahead. When you describe those attributes, 
you're issuing an implicit invitation to others to contribute, to be the eyes and ears of the organization, to contribute their ideas, to speak up quickly about concerns or signals of possible threat. You're basically saying we don't have a perfect playbook. We cannot because of the world in which we operate. That messaging, I believe, is really at the very heart of it. This is where it starts. It's it's sending the messaging that you see uncertainty, you see challenge, you're excited about it. You're optimistic that working together with all of the skills and experiences and talent we have here, we can do great things, but it's not straightforward, right? You're not mistaking your plans for something that is written in stone and will necessarily happen. You are presenting and thinking of and messaging plans as good hypotheses, but ones that will invariably need to be updated as more is learned. It starts with messaging. It then is at the very top of organizations. It's about building in systems and supports for smart experiments. One thing I always want to have emphasized at the top of organizations is that your pilot projects of innovations, you know, of new services and new products should absolutely fail. Now, I don't mean in an absolute sense being useless. I mean that they should discover they are good pilots if they have discovered the vulnerabilities in your great new idea before you release it at scale, right? So what we often see, what I often see in organizations is a picture-perfect pilot only to be followed by a launch that is a fiasco. They didn't get the kinks out. They didn't realize, like, the pilot was a failure because it didn't fail, whereas then the launch was a failure because it did fail. So where do, in other words, senior leaders are those who help create the conditions and the spaces where the failures happen so that they don't have to happen publicly and at scale. In the scheme of things, getting it right the first time is not always a blessing, right? It's not always what you really want because learning about the things that don't work helps you sharpen the direction in terms of what will work best. And I think sometimes even in those pilot efforts, right, we get overly hooked on the idea that the pilot has to go perfect for us to consider scaling it, right? I mean, sometimes I think you you need a pilot not to go perfectly and you should still be willing to go forward with scaling it based on what you've learned. You think of the pilot as sort of a proof of concept rather than as a laboratory experiment to figure out, because it's a good idea. Let's just say you wouldn't be doing it if it weren't a good idea. And your job now is to figure out how it can work perfectly at scale later, not right this minute. And the only way to have it work perfectly at scale later is if now is willing to fail and fail small in just the right ways. Flipping to the other side, more of the kind of bad failure types, you distinguish between basic failure, like Mm -hmm. I forgot to brush my teeth one morning and the complex failures. You described the example of the oil tanker that got grounded off the Isles of Scilly, Southwestern England. And Mm -hmm. By the way, that was the second time in a month I've heard of the Isles of Scilly, and I've never heard of them other other than in the last month. So it was sort of a weird coincidence. That is a very, hiking. very weird it's, coincidence. It's a very remote place. And a guy that I'd hiked with, he was born on the Isles of Scilly. Well, that's a magnificent and you know, tragic example of a complex failure. So let me explain yeah. the two kinds. Neither of these two types of failures are good. They're not things to be celebrated. In fact, whenever possible, which is most of the time, we try to prevent the two kinds of bad failures. They are kind one is a basic failure. 
And kind two is a complex failure. A basic failure is a single cause failure. Single error leads to a failure. Could be a big failure, could be a small failure. So for example, I write about this in the book, a New York City bus driver a couple of years ago crashed into, if you can believe it, a Brooklyn brownstone. 16 passengers were injured, none of them seriously, fortunately, but lost the bus, obviously, lost the route, did a lot of damage to the buildings as well. So what was the cause? Well, the driver had put shopping bags between his feet, which ended up leading his foot to get stuck in the accelerator. And you could say, well, that's just sort of a weird thing out of the blue. But this was there were explicit rules about nothing between your feet, nothing in front of the driver's seat was allowed. So it's a it's an error. It's a rule broken. And it led without any other no bad weather, no other factors whatsoever led to this kind of semi-tragic failure. Whereas the Torrey Canyon, the, the oil tanker that crashed in 1972 near the Isle of Scilly was one of the worst environmental disasters in history. And it was not sort of a single, the captain sort of just lost control and crashed into a rock. Indeed, my analysis of the story identifies at least six different factors, none of which on its own would have led to this tragic failure. But they had, in a sense, they all had to line up. It's what we think of as the perfect storm. The factors coming together, exacerbating each other, led to the failure. Certainly, again, coming back to, you know, as a leader, at a minimum, you want to try and nip these things in the bud when they're sort of smaller, more basic failures, exact, and not let them snowball into, right. into bigger things. Right, exactly. It's like the factors, when I say factors, six factors in this case, they're all like small deviations from best that on their own would not lead to a bad outcome. You know, So you can sort of casually ignore them or not worry too much about them. Okay, so we didn't program just right. Or anyway, the currents changed in a way we didn't expect. All of those things would have been totally fine. But having the fact of them all happening at once led to the outcome. But most of the complex failures I have studied could have been prevented had someone been willing to speak up or felt able to speak up earlier in the process. So that's where psychological safety comes back into the story, right? If any one of these factors were caught and altered in time, then we wouldn't have the complex failure. Yeah. And you see that so much. I mean, you talk a lot in the book about the healthcare industry, about airline travel and the way that pilots interact with each other. And I don't know whether you are a catalyst for some of the changes that did go on in the airline industry, but there were a couple of very famous examples. There was, I think, the Korean air crash out in California where the co-pilot felt afraid to speak up. I think there was one in New York where the co-pilot felt afraid to speak up. You hear all the time about nurses yeah. being afraid to speak up. And makes yes. such a huge difference when you can create an environment where people know that they can. Exactly. And aviation, that's well, it was well before my time in terms of my professional career interest in this topic. But it was really a culture change in aviation and passenger air travel across the board that occurred because of the recognition, the black box analysis that led to the recognition that way too many of these tragic failures were in fact traced back to a co-pilot, a lower in the hierarchy person being right. unwilling to speak up to contradict a pilot's order or observation. Once you saw it as a pattern, it was 
impossible not to say, okay, what do we do about it? And they introduced training and, and awareness that really changed the game entirely and has led to such an extraordinary safety record today. Now, at least a decade later, maybe more closer to two decades later, healthcare delivery started to wake up to the same idea. And I think it took longer because the tragic failures that did happen in that context, let's say, especially the context of hospitalized patients, happen one at a time. You don't wake up and see headlines in the newspaper about 200 deaths due to some catastrophic medical error. It's one at a time. And so it took longer to realize that some of the same human interpersonal dynamics were at play here and that the culture also needed to shift to one of anyone at any level being able and willing to speak up directly with a question, with a concern. Including the patient, I think about- Including the patient, yes. Going in for hip surgery years ago and the doctor before I went into the operating room said, sign the leg I'm operating on. That way there was no mistake. Yeah, and that's a beautiful example of a kind of error-proofing technique that sounds silly, but it's really smart practice, right? Why take the risk? So as much as I'm appreciative of intelligent failures in new territory, I am aghast at preventable failures in familiar territory. If we know which knee, and we do, needs operating, and a surgeon goes in there and operates on the wrong one, that's unacceptable. We don't need to have that, right? There are simple procedures we can use to prevent that kind of failure from happening. As individuals, I mean, we've talked a little bit about some of the things that organizations can do, but there are a lot of ways that our brains work against us in terms of preventing, assessing, responding. You talk a a fair amount about that in the book, and maybe you can give a little bit of like, what are the barriers that really get in our way of handling these situations better? There's so many, but the ones that come to mind, other than the sort of spontaneous aversion to failure, that desire to look good, which is very natural and reinforced in our society and our upbringings. A fun one is the confirmation bias. And I think most people are familiar with the idea of a confirmation bias. It can literally lead us to miss evidence of a failure, lead us to miss that we are doing the wrong thing, you know, driving in the wrong direction. We, we're looking for the data that reinforce our existing hypothesis about what we're doing. We can literally just tune out the data that disconfirm our idea about what we're doing. So that's kind of a really important one right there. If we're not seeing some of the failures that we're part of and contributing to, it's pretty hard to learn from them. There is a, a widely held belief by many, I think it's not right, but that you learn more from your successes than your failures. Like failures yep. are, that's doing it wrong. So all I can learn is how to do it wrong rather than that. In fact, there's a lot of gold there for how you might change and do it right. And of course, we worry about what others think of us as well. So what can we do to counteract those things and help ourselves learn as much as possible from failure? First, we have to remind ourselves that our job here on planet Earth is to keep learning. That's why we're here. That's why we're given these big brains, just to keep on learning in an ever-changing world. And part of that learning will be missteps. And particularly, we hope, the missteps going forward. And then be willing to go through the sort of, I'm not going to say it's hard work, but it can be emotionally hard work of learning from our failures. And the simple process there is to start with the clean question of what happened. Our instinct is like, 
who did it or who's to blame or how did I screw up rather than just what happened. And then once we've sort of described in our minds what happened as best we can, well, then what did I do or not do that contributed to that happening? And then simply, what will I try to do differently next time? That's simple. Simple, but hard. Not easy. Hard. <laughs> not e- simple, <laughs> simple, but not enough. easy. Exactly. Simple, but not easy. Switching gears, I always like to ask authors about their writing process. So what's yours? My writing process is remarkably inconsistent. I don't have a particular time of day. I do it when I can. I squeeze yeah. in wherever and whenever I can. I will say that one process I seem to be stuck with is that whenever I'm writing something, let's say it's a book, which is always means you're writing a chapter any given time, I'm working on a piece of a book or an article, I open the file on my computer and there I am, like it or not, at the beginning. And so part of my process, which I'm not sure this is best practice, but is to take a close, hard look at that beginning once again and see its flaws. And then I will sit there and try to make it better almost endlessly. And at a certain point, I have to just kick myself and say, time to move on. (laughs) You got to go on to page two now. So if you look closely, and I think many of my books and articles, you will find that they start strong. Well, you clearly put (laughs) a lot of thought into the beginnings. Most of your chapters in this book start with a story. There are a lot of stories in the book. And storytelling is something that's such a powerful tool for authors. You, You use it pretty frequently and very well. Thank you. Something I've learned how to do. Do you feel like your writing has gotten better? You've done seven books. You've done like 75 articles. How has your writing process evolved over the years? I'll tell you what's the same. What's the same is the endless drafts. Now that it's all on a keyboard, you don't really count pages that you've thrown out anymore. But there's no question that by the time you see a paper or see a book, way more sentences and words have been tossed than kept. It's just a willingness. I mean, I think Any good piece of writing is about taking away that which was not good rather than just being a good writer. I don't think there's any such thing, although I do think that writing reflects thinking. The problem with writing or the challenge of writing is getting clear on what do I really think? Do I have the evidence of that? It's this iterative process. I think what's different for me is that I have more skill born of experience. And I think what's really different is that I have more comfort with bringing out my own voice. And mm. if you look at my early writings, I'm not really in there. And in this book, I show up now and then. You show up right at the beginning. Yeah. I show up right at the beginning. And periodically, I'm there on the ski slope with one of my kids and later worrying about another one taking a summer job that I don't think is going to go well. Clearly, it's not all about me at all, but I'm more willing to kind of bring myself into it, my own voice into yeah. it. How do you continue to come up with fresh ideas? Well, I think it's a mix. I know it's a mix of reading and talking with people and Mm. visiting organizations. It's it's never anything sort of brand new under the sun, but there's all these remarkable kind of connections between things that can only occur and then give rise to new ideas from going out there and being observant and trying to make those connections. Certainly, as we all continue to learn and evolve, new things strike us that we hadn't necessarily really thought about before. But it's hard sometimes. I would imagine if there's times, especially as you become known for writing regularly, that there's always that pressure to produce Oh yeah, that has to be hard at times. It really is. Especially when I finish a book, I just think every time I thought, never again. And then sort of, (laughs) lo and behold, there you are doing it again. 
I think partly that pressure to sort of, well, what have you said lately? Yeah. And partly it is just, in a way, it's what I do. I want to explain things. I want to explain things so that I can kind of convey to others what I've learned in this wonderfully circuitous path. Given that this is a career-focused podcast, we would be remiss if we didn't bring failure into play in terms of talking about how it plays out in our careers. How do you see it playing out in the way that people think about their careers, both the good and the bad? Let me start with the bad, because I think the bad, which I just see so much of among my students, it's such an easy trap to fall into, which is not taking risks. It's just picking the thing that seems safer. And a related phenomenon is picking jobs, especially when you're very young, early in your career, picking jobs for some small pay discrepancy rather than for a big learning discrepancy, right? So always go for the job that from which you will learn more, which often means you'll be stretched or maybe it's different or it's a different context out of your comfort zone, in other words, and then make sure to mine those lessons. Do not pick, again, especially early in your career, jobs based on pay. Or based on what somebody else wants you to do or oh, what, my gosh. what conventional yes. wisdom thinks you should do. I mean, you teach business school students who all probably feel a lot of them that they should go off to consulting or investment banking. And for many of them, that's not really the right choice. No, it's true. And it's funny. They come to us to learn how to be great managers, and then they often go off and don't manage. A generation ago, of course, it was quite different, but they don't, I think, put quite enough value on the joy and the contribution from being in an operating company that is producing products or services upon which our society depends. And the excitement of just being part of something large and complex that is doing something that none of us could do alone. And just doing that through leading and managing people, it's quite a satisfying opportunity if you think about it. Yeah, very much so. And if you can get effective at helping people embrace change, embrace failure, learn from those, continue to make the organizations better. I mean, that's ultimately the essence of leadership in a way. Absolutely. On the good side, the good part of the way failure can play out in managing a career is related to, as I said before, taking on challenges, being willing Mm -hmm. to take on challenges, knowing it will be a stretch, knowing it won't necessarily go perfectly, persistence, that grit, and habit, a very strong and disciplined habit of reflecting on your own experiences, doing everything you can to mine the lessons that your experience is offering to you, but you won't get it automatically. You have to pause to reflect. You have to really be willing to think deeply about what has worked, what hasn't worked, where you've done well, where you've come up short. And that's just got to be part of your habitual approach to work. I think so many people look at those situations that they didn't enjoy, right? They didn't do well at it. They didn't Mm -hmm, like the people mm -hmm. they worked with. They didn't like their boss. And they'll put that in the bucket of failure, right? In a way. And they'll just completely move on and almost like mentally, emotionally cut ties with it. And some of that is probably necessary. But at the same time, you're missing that learning opportunity if you don't really think about both the good and the bad, right? The successes and the failures the things that worked and didn't work in your past and what you do every day in your past jobs, all of it. Absolutely. And you you become more and more at at risk of playing not to lose, you know, rather than playing to win. Playing to win. Yeah. Taking taking the safe bets and 
only entering the contest you know you can win, which yeah. is a loss. Yeah, very true. Maybe we'll bring that into your own career. You have a triple degree from Harvard when you were a child. What ideas did you have about what you wanted to do professionally? I don't remember having very clear ideas. The only thing I remember is thinking I could be a teacher. I think I had an early sort of affection for explaining things, maybe as an older sister. And of course, as a child, that's one of the jobs you see. So I think I did periodically think about being a teacher, but I didn't spend an awful lot of time or have an awful lot of clarity about what I would be, which it could have saved me some time if I had. Now, most of us are in that case. I can't even remember. At one point, I can remember mm. wanting to be a lawyer. That lasted about six months when I was maybe 12. But other than that, I really can't remember anything in particular. You ended up spending some time right after Harvard undergrad working for Buckminster Fuller. How did you land that job? And <laughs> well, that what was, was it like working for him? One of the early risks I took was I heard him give a, a talk while I was in college, and I just was mesmerized by his message, which was that we're here to make a difference. We're on Spaceship Earth to sort of use our brains to solve problems, to take care of each other and the future. So I said, well, that sounds good to me. I mean, a bit all encompassing, but I was quite impressed by his message. And he was remarkable sort of inventor and educator and writer. And so I just decided to take a chance. I mean, it's not a huge chance. I think the stamp costs 13 cents, but to write a letter, technically I asked for advice. You know, I'm about to graduate from college and I wonder what advice you might have about somebody with this particular sort of technical degree, but a real interest contributing to things that matter. And to my utter surprise and of course delight, he he wrote right back and said, when you're finished up with Harvard, why don't you come and and join me in my Philadelphia office, which if you think about it, that sentence doesn't tell you very much, right? What yeah. does that mean? I mean, what would I get paid and what would I do? I just decided it didn't matter. I just mm. decided I was going to show up. There was never anything I wrote back and didn't hear again about start date or anything like that. So I just showed up. That was really scary because I'm here I am city I've never been in before. And I show up essentially knock on the office door and it was amazing and fantastic. And pretty soon, within a pretty short time, like a couple of months, I was knee deep in engineering projects that were ongoing. And it was a dream come true. How did that experience shape how you thought about your career since then? I think it's shaped who I was in some very profound ways, in part because just that being in the vicinity of someone who himself was such a risk taker and hadn't followed the beaten path, but had been creative and just done such a variety of things, it legitimized that kind of expansiveness. And he was widely admired and had a successful career in life and many, many admirers and many friends. And so sort of like it allowed the weird to seem okay, right? Because this was all a little strange to go build geodesic domes in strange parts of the world. But working for him, he was generous, appreciative. He was generous with praise and just joyful. He was a sort of a joyful human being who celebrated other people and life. And so it spoiled me. That was my first post-college job. How do you top that? Yeah. Sort of working right at the top, right for the boss, as it were. And he's generous with praise and gives me opportunities to do things I've never done before. 
terrified first time he said could you do engineering drawings for these projects and i thought now i'm going to get caught as it come up short but no he thought they were fine and on and on it went so lots of risk taking lots of opportunity and lots of just a, a wonderful feeling in the office of being part of a family that was making some kind of difference he talked a lot by the way about failure and mistakes as key sources of learning he talked a lot about the various failures he'd had both personally and technical engineering failures and would just literally exude a kind of joyful almost a childlike energy about what he learned from each of them and how they right. shaped the overall journey and so i thought that was a very inspiring message and i must have just parked it away in here somewhere as you say, you've kind of come full circle. As you said very early in the discussion, you spent some time after that at Pecos River Learning Centers. You were, among other things, I'm sure, watching corporate yeah. teams come in, go through these outdoor learning exercises, watching them. What did you learn? This is where my psychology training, informal, began because I was really watching people. Instead of doing geodesic calculations, I was watching people. And one of the things that really jumped out at me is how people in these experiences, these outdoor training exercises, which were quite challenging, they're safe, but they're emotionally challenging and they feel frightening, like climbing a pole or jumping off a zip line. And I saw that people developed very strong commitments to their groups but that were usually intact teams from companies very powerfully and quickly when they had an opportunity to be vulnerable and authentic with each other in this kind of weird non-work setting. They're, when they're put in a position of physical challenge, really they found themselves quite dependent on each other for support to take these challenges. And they bonded in ways that were really quite striking. You'd hear them talking about, if we could take this energy back there, we'd be awesome. Right. In that story, I think you can hear so much of my later work, and it was about psychological safety. It was about being honest. It was about being vulnerable. And it was ultimately about problem solving and realizing that as teams, they could do more than, than they thought they could do. It's funny how those experiences, we had one in my job recently with a big project and the culmination of that after several years, and it's sort of the trial by fire thing, right? That creates a bond that you don't get yeah. in the day-to-day. -day. And you just wonder like, yeah. how could you create that without having to have the fire? You know? That's right. I think sometimes sports teams in that course earlier, usually earlier in people's academic lives, have some of that same right. going through something just stressful and challenging and uncertain with each other and that tremendous bond that can happen. Now, you're also involved in Thinkers 50. For those of you who are in the Thinkers 50 group, how does the organization and that group of 50 inspire you and fuel your thinking? I think it's surprisingly warm and generous community. I've been quite impressed by the culture of, I don't know if it's the organization or the community, but I think the leaders of the organization must have done some things right to basically lead to this incredibly mutually supportive, you know, you could imagine, you know, some reality TV show where people are just quite backbiting and so on. But instead, it's been a celebration. And I think it's maybe this is the answer. It's set up as a sort of a celebration of ideas. And it's a very positive acknowledgement that management matters, that so much of the outcomes in our world are the mm. result of well-managed organizations. When things go well, when they don't go well, it's quite the opposite. So I think the community comes together and their shared appreciation of this topic 
the fun of being a part of it together, I think. As somebody who is making a living off of your ideas and your ability to convey them, you could easily, to your point about it becoming like a reality show, you could easily easily envision a very competitive dynamic. But I think it sounds like the group's kind of coming together more from the perspective that there is an abundance of opportunity yes. out there and plenty of room for everybody and that you make each other better. And you talk about growth mindset in this most recent book. I mean, certainly that's an example of that coming into being. I absolutely agree. Yeah, which is great. And again, I think about just my role in being a leader in a company. And at the end of the day, what you're really trying to do is to bring the practice of management and leadership to bear. I think a lot about how do I make the people individually better? How do I help them? How do I make the institution better? It's almost like you're kind of operating at that meta level more sometimes than you are operating at the level of like, okay, we have to get this task done today because that's the way you sort of change the system, if you will. It's long-term too. I mean, I think there is an enormous pull toward the to-do list, the tasks, the day-to-day. I think it takes real wisdom to sort of step back and force yourself to be interested in the people and the systems and the long-term creation of value that you have a chance to influence here and not get entirely caught up in that good feeling of just getting things done, checking things off, because that's not the role of leaders. It's not the role of great managers. It's to develop others. And wow, what a satisfying job that is when done well, to know that you are influencing others, making their lives better, making their skills deeper, helping them become more honest and open, building better relationships. I mean, it's hard for me to think of much that's more meaningful than that. Well, you get to provide the ideas that spark the rest of us on how to be better. You're obviously well-established at this point. How do you choose to spend your time? Like, What's the mix of things that you are doing at the moment professionally? Well, the answer to that second question may not be precisely the same as the answer to the first question, because sometimes I don't believe it's quite enough. I don't exercise enough choice at times, but I say how I spend my time. I won't try to estimate the exact percentages, but portion of my time is fortunately spent collecting new data, interview data, and quantitative survey data. Some portion is spent sort of making sense of those data. A lot, especially in recent years, is spent writing and a fair amount is spent teaching both in the MBA classroom and in executive education classrooms. And then, of course, there's a portion that's spent in administrative meetings and other sort of necessary tasks that keep the institution going along. And then probably my favorite task of all is the job of mentoring PhD students, especially, because that's where I feel my strengths are greatest. I love ideas. I'm, if I have one superpower, it's conceptual. It's seeing concepts and how they connect. And then sometimes seeing the simplicity amidst the complexity and being able to clarify that. I love doing that. That's a team sport too. And I love doing yeah. it, especially with the doctoral students. Yeah, well, certainly our mutual friend, Wendy Smith, had wonderful things to say about the role that you played when she was oh. working on her own PhD at Harvard. What do you do to keep yourself energized to recharge your battery? I think my sons wouldn't let me use this word, but I run. They would say it's something like a slow crawl, but I'm going to still call it running. I do love to run. I love to read. I mean, just for fun, as well as work books, of course. 
occasionally, and especially in summer, I get out there on a sailboat and engage in some local racing. That's the place where I'm absolutely most disconnected. Running often, it's like, ooh, how do I fix that paragraph? Whereas on a sailboat, 100% attention. Yeah, for me, that's hiking. I think partly because it's just a long enough outing that you really start to disconnect more. The runs, as I'm sure they are for you, get squeezed in often for me early in the morning, and you've got to get back by a certain amount of time to start your workday. Any final thoughts, lessons for people to be thinking about in terms of how to think about their careers? Choose learning over performing every time, and that will lead you in the right direction and help you keep developing your skills, your ability to make that positive contribution that will ultimately bring you joy and success. I mean, it's really taking a long-term view, right? In terms of where you stand most to gain in the long-term, as opposed to where you perhaps, back to your point about moving jobs just for a little bit more pay or taking a job for just a little bit more pay, you know, it's that long-term thinking. Absolutely. And that's, I think we as humans, that's one of the things we struggle with so much. We privilege the now over the long-term readily, and we privilege the me and my needs over the us and our opportunities. Mm. Life and success is a constant sort of push against here and now and me thinking toward the later and elsewhere and us thinking. Very well said. Thank you for doing this. I'm sure you are about to get very busy with the book about to come out and appreciate that you were willing to make time for me today. Oh, it was a pleasure, truly. Thank you. And have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.